The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Big welcome to anybody who's new here for the first time. It's always good for all of us here, those who've been around for decades and those who are brand new. It's just good to remember that it's not always easy for people to walk in the doors. People don't always feel safe in the space. So just want to appreciate people coming on in and please let us know how we can welcome you and how we can make this place feel welcoming and safe for you to do your practice. It's surprisingly important, this quality of safety, in a way, in a funny way maybe even, the whole path of waking up, becoming a wiser, kinder human being would probably be a lot easier if we felt safe. And, you know, we have lots of reasons not to feel safe, some of us more than others, of course. But it's, uh, like it or not, it's in a way one of our primary responsibilities as a human being, besides all the other duties and responsibilities that we have in our lives, is to find ways to feel safe. Because when we feel relatively safe, you know, we're never going to feel perfectly safe, and even moments of safety won't last. But when we feel safe enough, it's relatively easy for the mind to be curious. And when we're afraid or anxious or feel overwhelmed, then that sort of survival mechanism kicks in. And uh, we become, it's like the more primitive habits of the mind take over. I want to talk a little bit about this tonight. I thought a good title might be something like Understanding Conceit, this particular pattern of conceit. And I want to talk about what that is and the heart's release. Because this is, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, it's considered one of those mental patterns, uh, torments of mind. Sometimes it's described or as a fetter. Right, a fetter is something that obstructs clarity, obstructs understanding, gets in the way of freedom. This pattern of conceit. And conceit is defined in a very specific way in the Buddhist tradition. It's that mental pattern, or you could say mental habit, where the mind fixes or identifies with the sense of being better than, being worse than, and this is surprising, even fixing on the idea of being the same as. Because it's not how we place ourselves or locate ourselves in hierarchy or how we locate ourselves in comparison with others. It's really about the fixedness of that location, like that's who I am. I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm the same as. It's the fixedness that turns out to be problematic. Not that in a moment we see ourselves as being better or worse or the same as, but the fixedness of the identity. And this is the habit of conceit. And it's really useful to begin to notice all the little, all the big ways our mind falls into conceit. 
And the Buddha makes this very clear. We can notice it in other people too. I mean, why only learn from our own habits? Because, you know, especially those people who we're pretty close to, we can sense when our good friends are lost or caught up in their own conceits, right? It's, in a way, it's more apparent observing a dear one than it is to see our own stuff around our conceits, how we, you know, place ourselves. And you can see, like, as a social being, how this would have got, this pattern or habit would have gotten set in motion. You know, and I'm sure you know about, some of you at least know about dogs, which is a very social being, right? Dogs are very social and hierarchical. And humans are not that different. You know, we're always in social situations. We're locating ourselves. Like, for example, you know, for those of you who've been around for a while, you may locate yourself as somebody who's been around for a while. Like, that gives you a certain, within your own mind, it's not like some objective status that some gatekeeper is keeping for us all, like where you fit. But within our own mind, we locate ourselves as, oh yeah, I'm one of the regulars, or I'm new, or I'm one of the old-timers. I've done a lot of retreat practice, you know, or something like that. So we tend to locate ourselves. So when you go home to be around your siblings or family members, you know, you have a, I'm the parent here, I'm the child here, the sibling here, the oldest sibling, the younger sibling, you know, the sibling that hasn't done so well, the sibling that's really done well, right? We locate ourselves in different ways. We do it unconsciously all the time. That's what I meant in a way, like when we walk into a new space, those of you who are new, you know, we locate ourselves. There are all kinds of things that are operating around class, around race, around uh, sex, sexual orientation, how we see gender. All these things are part internally and then also collectively in terms of, because not only are we placing ourselves somewhere, everyone else is placing us somewhere, right? And sometimes their placement affects our placement. Maybe vice versa. And the most important thing in the investigation is to be curious enough about this more subtle activity of mind we call conceit to notice it's stressful, whatever the conceit is. Like even something seemingly neutral like thinking, oh, I'm probably the same as everybody else, or we're all the same here. And if we're using that identity in a fixed way to make us feel safe, then there will be a cost. Not to the thought, we're all the same here. A thought is not much of anything, but the fixation or the attachment to the thought, the clinging to the identity, that comes with the cost, right? The squeeze in the heart, the mind that's dependent on that placement, on that sense of 
me being here or like that or at that level or however we the mind constructs it. You know, once we've placed ourselves, then we're in familiar ground. And then in that familiar ground, the mind goes about thinking and solving the problems the self has. Right? Like, given that I'm here, right, we place ourselves, we define ourselves, and then in that place that we've placed ourselves, located ourselves, then there comes with a set of problems, things to achieve, things to get rid of, ways we want to be noticed, ways we don't want to be noticed. And we go about kind of most of our mental activity is then solving the problems the self has in the location that I have, whatever that location is. I'm good at this, I'm bad at that, I want this, I don't want that. But it all, all of that proliferation, this is what we talked about last week, mental proliferation, the Pali word is papancha. You can listen to the talk online if you weren't here last week. That papancha, mental proliferation, it really, it's a way of, it kind of comes with the territory of having location, having a fixed sense of self, as opposed to a fluid, non-fixed sense of self. A lot of times we think that the Buddha was saying there's no self, and it can sound that way from some of the teachings, but that's not really what he's saying. He's saying we don't understand, we misunderstand what self is. There is no fixed location. There's no placement. That's a construction of the mind that a self, that I have location, I have agency as a fixed thing. And this is really important in understanding identity because identity is a really, now especially these days, is sort of a, um, it's a really useful thing to understand. And we tend to kind of be really confused around identity, either thinking like, all, like this is sort of can be, unfortunately, a shadow in Buddhism, thinking that all identities are sort of like, you know, there is no identity. So why, why are you obsessed with identity, whatever that might be? But actually, identities are really useful. They're functional, probably impossible not to have identities. Of course, even thinking we shouldn't have identities is a kind of an identity. So there's no way around it. We need identity. It's They're incredibly useful for understanding, like illuminating what we're not seeing in a situation. I mentioned a few weeks ago, at, maybe it was a Sunday morning talk, like in my own work in the last number of years, learning how to be more skillful as a racial being. You know, it's like as a white person, learning to understand my racial identity as a white person has been really useful and unpleasant, right? Because 
part of the um, habit is to not ha- see identity, right? That's part of what it means to be white in our culture is to not see whiteness. So to train our mind to see whiteness, uh, so much of my mind and my sort of the dynamic here in culture, it gets illuminated when I can use that identity. Same with class, same with maleness, right? My sexual identity, my gender. It's really helpful to use these. It's not helpful to cling to identities, right? Clinging to identities is suffering. Ignoring identities is suffering. This is a very Buddhist way. We use things like identity as a skillful means to illuminate what's not being seen. So we can see what needs to be seen. There's no freedom without seeing clearly. If we can't recognize what's moving in our communities, in our relationships, and even within our own heart and mind, how are we going to be free? We just basically keep doing what we've done before and having the same results. One teacher I remember used this really great um, phrase that it's helpful. Like that normal proliferation, like once we have placement and we become unconscious about our placement because it becomes, in a way, second nature to the mind. So we no longer, we can't detect how the mind is placing itself as an entity, as a person, as a self in some way. Then we just proliferate around the problems that self, that self-placement has. Right? So we think in ways that make sense with that particular placement. And so we could, you know, as this one teacher did, we could describe that as, you know, that obsession with the problems the self has. But there's another frame or another perspective, let's call it, when we're not confused by a particular placement, the mind has more space in it, more perspective. And then the interesting question arises, the problem the self is instead of the problem the self has. Do you get the difference? Right? Well, we're actually looking at the problem that arises when self has a fixed location. Because once there's a fixed location, there's something to defend, something that needs defending. Something, like once I have a location, then people are either higher or lower or the same as, right? And so we were joking, uh, our, I meet once a month with uh, a bunch of other folks like myself, white, mostly straight, older now, I'm 60, and I think I'm the youngest in the group, um, men. And it's a racial affinity group, right? So we're sort of unpacking some of this work. And, uh, and we were all talking about when we started this group not that long ago, half a year ago. You know, it's like none of us wanted to be in a group that, were, that was made up of elderly, white, mostly straight men. It's like, God, 
I don't want to be identified with that group. So once we have a location, then you know there's certain problems. But if we can step out and see that any location, any fixed location is problematic because there's something to defend, there's something like I want to be different than, I want to be seen as, all of that kind of endless mental proliferation comes not because of location, but because the location appears in our mind to be fixed. This is who I am. We've defined ourselves. We've located ourselves. And then all of a sudden, there's a self with problems when we're located. But when we have more space, we can see that any location is problematic. Now we're beginning to consider the question the problems the self is as opposed to the problems the self has. Like how any fixed location is experienced as a weight in our heart, a a problem. There's a story that many of you have heard me tell. I think I heard it first from Ed Brown, who's a well-known Zen teacher. Um, But it's about the farmer who goes and visits the Buddha And he's got a list of complaints because it's not easy being a farmer. You know, the family, the farm animals, the weather, the this, the that, the pests. And uh, it takes a while, but he eventually tracks down the Buddha, gets an audience, and complains to the Buddha about all the problems he has in his life and asks the Buddha to fix it. And the Buddha said, I can't fix it. Everybody has 83 problems. Even if I had some clever solution to one of your problems, you just end up with another problem. So the farmer storms off because he thinks like, what the heck have I been doing tracking you down and this is all you're going to say to me? Forget it. And as he was stomping away, the Buddha said, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. Can't solve your 83 problems because you're just going to end up with more, but I can't help you with your 84th. So the farmer turns around because he's frustrated and he just, and so he asks, so what's my 84th problem? And the Buddha says, you don't like having 83 problems. I can help you with that problem. (laughs) And this is that switch from the problem the self has, that's the 83, to the problem the self is, that's the 84th problem, right? The 84th problem is, When there's enough space, enough wisdom, this is where that safety comes in, right? If we're overwhelmed by life, if we're oppressed, if we're sick, if we're in financial distress or our home life is having troubles, not so easy to recognize the problem the self is, that any location, because we're very obsessed with our particular location where we think we are, who we are, and the problems that self has. But when we can have a little bit more space, we realize how any location is problematic. Even if we got what we wanted, had the body we wanted, had the life we wanted, the world was the way we wanted, even that location, whatever we had imagined the perfect location would be, would be problematic. 
And then we get interested in this question that the Buddha is actually willing, his teachings are willing or capable of helping us with, the problem the self is. The problem that any conceit is, any fixed location is. And this is what I, I, you know, just in simple ways in the guided meditation instructions tonight, you know, just encouraging when we have that simplicity of feeling the body in and of itself, feeling the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out, or something like just the simple awareness of hearing, any simple, clear, full presence with things just as they are, then in that moment, for a moment, for maybe a couple moments, when the mind is aware of seeing or hearing, aware of the body sensations just as they are, and really interested, right? Because the mind needs to be intimate, fully there with things as they are, sensations as they are, sounds, sights, right? See, in those moments, the mind isn't obsessing about where it's located, who I am and the problems I have in that location, right? Because like I mentioned in the guided instructions, you can't do, the mind can't do two things at the same time. So if the awareness is here with the breathing in or here with the whole body awareness or here with hearing or you just, you know, in the experience of seeing, right? Because we're all mostly have our eyes open. Not looking. Looking is different than seeing, right? Because when we're looking, we're, we're basically a self who's trying to figure out something. But if we relax the gaze and we realize without trying that seeing is happening, just like now hearing, without you or anyone doing anything, hearing's happening. Being sensitive to the body as sensation, that's just happening. You're not, you don't have to try you, the self, don't have to try to feel sensations, right? And when we get interested in the sensitivity, the present moment sensitivity, willing to actually connect, to be interested, then that part of the mind that proliferates endlessly, almost endlessly spinning around the problems the self has, See how it starts to get a little quiet? Because it can't do two things at once. So if we're fully, it's, a, it's like an amazing trick. I mean, this is just the beginning of the fruit of mindful awareness practice. But the basic initial fruit benefit of the practice is when the mind is fully present, seeing, hearing, touching, thoughts are just thoughts, then it can't be obsessively worrying, planning, judging, comparing, reinforcing the location of a sense of self, a sense of me, and in that location, me has lots of problems, and endlessly proliferating about that, which is what the mind normally is doing, the thinking mind is normally doing, but we interrupt the pattern just in that first 
and any moment really where there's a more full, curious presence. And then if we can sustain that present moment awareness, then that pattern really gets interrupted. And we start to notice the telltale flavor of liberation of a mind with no location. And it can actually scare us. Like some of you, it'd be interesting, maybe we'll do a show of hands. How many have, have you, of you have had experiences, whether it's in a formal meditation or just out doing your day, but where you had some moments of a more simple and profound presence, present moment awareness, and you scared yourself. Like there was some fear, as if there was something dangerous with being present, <laughs> being intimate. Anybody had that experience? Yeah, a few of you. It's actually not that uncommon because we have learned to feel safe in the world of spinning, mental spinning, thinking about the problems the self has. That is the world we're familiar with. And when the mind drops out of that world, fear can arise, not because it's actually dangerous, but because it's unfamiliar. You know, who are we when we're not a self located somewhere with a very particular set of problems that I'm thinking about and worrying about and trying not to think about? Even trying not to think about it is thinking about it, obsessing about it, right? So we think about it in any number of ways, not just like, okay, I, this is what I need and I'm going to, you know, sometimes we've got that more deliberative, I'm going to solve this problem and fix my problem and become a self without a problem. And sometimes I'm tired of thinking about my problems, I'm not going to think about those problems, I'm going to fantasize about sex or I'm going to think about this or I'm going to do that. Plan, you know, the perfect vacation or the perfect escape. Think about what I'm going to eat when I go home. But it's all about, one way or another, a self with a location and the problems that come with that location or the hopes and dreams that come with that location. And it seems very familiar and comfortable to obsess, to continually spin with those kinds of thoughts. So we get taste, like when I mentioned conceit, right, which is a word we use for the kind of basic cause, right? The conceit is that location and the mind's dependence on the location. Because like I mentioned, working with identity is a strategic use of location. Like for example, the example I gave earlier, you know, we could all like use something like class. And we could just take some time as we look at jewelry and clothes and even body language in the room and just have just, and that could be quite illuminating for us. Like I might see things about myself and also socially like how I'm interacting with all of you by using the identity of class, locating myself, locating as much as I can all of you in that frame. We could do it around race, we could do it around gender, around sex, we could do it around age, we could do it around body size, 
right? Probably many other ways that I'm not thinking about right now. We could do it around like who's been around a lot at Common Ground, who's relatively new, right? So we could locate each other in all kinds of arrays or all kinds of categories. And that could be useful because it could, it could ch- illuminate what my mind is doing unconsciously. Like once I see how class operates, then, or race, you know, how my racial conditioning operates, then I can be sensitive to what it's like to have my racial conditioning operating in my mind or my class conditioning, or my gender conditioning operating in my mind. Otherwise, I'm being pushed around by that conditioning, those biases, unconsciously. So freedom, the, Buddha, the, the freedom the Buddha points to, is really this freedom to use these different frames as skillful means without being caught in them. It's not about not using frames. I mean, the Dharma itself, the teachings of the Buddha themselves, are just identity, you know, they're just different frames, different perspectives that we use to better illuminate how the mind gets caught, how we cause harm for ourselves and others. Basically, fall into oppressive patterns and project, you know, act out oppression, dominance, victimization, how we're part of these patterns within our own heart and mind and within our culture, within our society and all our communities. And so as, you're, as you get curious, you know, just throughout your day, throughout your sit, like whenever there's any mental activity, then in a way as you're stepping back and realizing, oh yeah, the mind's thinking, right? Then one way to kind of like this is how we use a frame. So now we have the frame of conceit, like a lens or a frame. So you're, you just caught yourself. You were lost in thought. Now you're aware that you've just been lost in thought. And you put the frame of conceit around it. Like what's the conceit? What's the location that this thought is coming out of? This whatever the little drama, thinking drama that your mind has been involved in over the last few minutes, let's say. What's the the location that allows for the spinning, right? And then you see that, oh, that's the conceit. You can actually feel and see that contracted sense of me. And that's what we have to do. We have to see that the fixed sense of self is just that. That's all it is. It doesn't, there isn't an, a me, a, a self that we have to let go of. It's not actually a self. It's just a psychological pattern you know, that involves a inner tension and some mental activity. And together, you know, the mental activity and the tightness, squeeze of the heart, that's what we call selfing. Eye-making and mind-making is often how it's translated in the tradition, right? So you actually catch catch the eye-making, mind-making, or selfing, locating, fixing. And when you see it, and it's only when we see it, when you could say wisdom sees it happening in real time, that then you can see something else, which we call letting go. Because a lot of times we feel like when we have a vague sense that I have got, I'm 
I have some conceit. I have a strong sense of self. I'm stuck. I'm fixed. Like we have a general sense of that a lot of the time. You know, especially if we have a particular pattern with another human being, you know, where we're feeling hurt or not feeling seen. And it can kind of live in us for weeks at a time, this sort of sense of a something me, a located me who hasn't gotten what he, she, it needs, they need, right? Then we see it. We feel the contraction. And then if we can see it without judging it, without demonizing or pathologizing the conceit, but just see it, then we see letting go happen. See, this is the thing, letting go, the deeper letting go, like really seeing moments where the 84th problem goes away. The 84th problem is not liking the self that has 83 problems, right? Being the self, the located self with 83 problems. That goes away when we see it. We see the conceit, we see the location, and we don't try to make it go away because that's another conceit. We're establishing ourselves as the one who's going to make it go away. And then I'll be the one who made it go away. I'll be the one who's free. Right? But that conceit, being the one who's free, is also tight. There are a lot of tight people who think they're liberated. Sometimes they come and they ask for a one-to-one meeting with me, right? And they want to tell me about a meditation experience where they felt some freedom. And they might have actually had really some real freedom. But then what did they do after their, let's say, deeper experience of freedom? They located themselves as a person who had a deep meditative experience. I'm the person who had this deep meditative experience it probably means something, maybe I'm free, or something like that. But this is who I am. I'm the per- Even if they don't know what the experience is, they can be the one who had an experience, but they don't know what it is. Right? And then, but the, if the heart has the squeeze, if there's still a constriction, a tightness, a holding, a location, well, then there's suffering. Then, That's not what we're looking for, so that's not it. Whatever it is, that's not it. So letting go is a very interesting, letting go of conceit is a natural process. It isn't something, no matter how clear, let's say it's actually the wisdom in the mind that really sees the conceit. But letting go has to happen naturally as a natural process. This is why the Buddha said that patience is the greatest, the most beautiful of all the austerities or all the practices, right? To kind of feel into, see into with a lot of integrity all the ways the mind gets caught in conceit, all the little and ways, the oh poor me conceit. That's such a familiar one to me. Anybody got that one? <laughs> All that, like even within that one category of conceits, 
how many different versions do I have of the oh poor me? You know, like when my spouse isn't exactly the way I want her to be. Oh poor me. Or my cat, even my cat I can have it. <laughs> Comes in after being gone the whole day, you know, and just walks right past me. Checks out its bowl, you know, which is empty, and then it goes to its own place and plops down. As if I weren't even there. <laughs> it's so fun. I mean, it's just fun being with my wife because we both have this, we're aware of this location of being the one who loves the cat, being the one who saved this cat from a miserable life <laughs> out in the farmland of western Wisconsin being eaten by ticks and fleas and beaten up by the other farm cats and not having a location, <laughs> you know, and rescuing, right? We're the rescuers of this cat. So we see this all the time, the, these locations, these conceits. And it's so nice to have that serene smile, like to be willing to observe them. And then they just dissolve, they can at least, when we're patient and curious. That's the key, is to be really curious about identity. Really use it with curiosity and, and skill to kind of show up what's not being seen. There's, um, you know, some people have said, you need a self to let go of a self. And this is what I meant about using identity. You know, to kind of locate ourselves and to really own that location. This is what it feels like to be male. This is what it feels like to be different than everyone. Uh, That was something I've lived with. You know, we all do this to some degree, but, you know, no, no, but I'm really different. I've been different for a long time, even when I was... You know, we have these sort of, that's my location, like the one who's not the same. The one who didn't belong in their family, or whatever. Or the one who fit in. The one who had to take care of everybody else in the family. So to get curious about these conceits, not so you can go get rid of them, because you don't actually have to get rid of them. It's not the location that's the problem. What's the problem? The attachment. Yeah, the fixation, the holding to the location. Imagining the location is more than what it is. Imagining there's some permanent entity in that location. That's the problem. The location isn't the problem. Because moment by moment, we're going to have location. Can we illuminate that like, and make it useful and uh, a, like a, a way to help us understand the dance of being with other people? That's what we want to do with location. Not have it be a habit that we then, because we've been unconsciously, because we've unconsciously located ourselves somewhere, then we're unconsciously defending an imagined place. I mean, it's really that silly. One teacher calls it like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. Isn't that a great image? It's like protecting a self that isn't there, protecting a location where there actually isn't anybody in the way that we imagine there's somebody. But we, that's only revealed when we get curious about conceit. 
And we're going to see many, many, right? So the more locations you see, the better. Like even between now and when you go to bed tonight, you could see dozens and dozens of locations. Like when you're watching or reading the news, the self-righteous one, you know, the one who agrees, or we're on the same page with this, you know. Always, oh, no, no, you're wrong. So I want to leave it here so we have time to check in. We have 15 minutes tonight. It's time for any questions you have about what I've said, but also your own examples from your life where you've maybe seen locations. And also it would be nice to hear like how you've caught your mind feeding the conceit and how through that patience and that curiosity you saw the the conceit and or the uh, suffering around the conceit dissolving, right? Yeah, Tim, you want to start us off? You want to just pass it behind you? Person in the green. Hello. Um, I started getting interested in the teachings about ten years ago, and it was talking about n- no self and stuff, and it all like. It clicked with me a lot mentally because I used to be really interested in psychology, but I found it really unfulfilling, like studying in college, but I found it really unfulfilling intellectually because it seemed like there's personality and there's Myers-Briggs and it's ANFP and TNTJ and stuff like that. And and I was like, that's just a bunch of letters. That doesn't describe anything about who I am, you know. So I found myself like really adhering to this idea. There is no personality. There's no such thing. It's just it's just these the construct. But then like buying into that, I was walking around and I really didn't have a personality. <laughs> and you don't want to be around someone who doesn't have a personality because they're kind of boring and not that great to be around. So um, that's what I experienced. Yeah, and this is the kind of weird stuff that you see in, in the Buddhist scene where people are kind of playing with these teachings and trying to make sense of them. And it can seem initially like, okay, no self, so I'm going to be this sort of flat blob, you know, that unfeeling, <laughs> disembodied, you know, disconnected, detached, waiting until I die. As if that would be some kind of happiness. You know, it sounds sort of miserable. But it's hard to imagine. Like, it's, it, it really takes a movement into the mass of personality and really getting to know attachment and know the psychology of the mind. Not objectively, as Tim was saying, but subjectively, right? If there is something called psychology, we don't need books. It's playing itself out in living color right here in this, what we call the body and the mind. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thank you. Who'd like to go next? Other thoughts? Yeah, please. Hi, uh, Marissa. Um, this is all incredibly timely, so thank you. Um, I'm actually in the process of dealing with uh, kind of a really core identity that's not serving me any longer. Um, and one of the things that it kind of brought me to in um, terms of my meditation practice is also that um, I do, well, I do a lot of avoidance in a lot of different ways. Um, And I feel like 
I, I kind of question. So the curiosity piece is, is kind of where my question is, because I feel like every time I get to a place where the, 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 the one time that, um, well, it's happened a couple times, but that really I remembered was, um, realizing that I wasn't actually controlling my breath <laughs> and that I was witnessing it as opposed to controlling it. And like the minute I realized I was witnessing it, I was, it was like I was back to controlling it. And so when I'm sitting and I'm trying to let stuff come um, and I'm trying, I'm supposed to be curious about it. What I find myself doing is, and maybe it's obsessing about my anchor and coming back to my breath where, cause it's almost like the minute I turn to, to it it's gone and I'm wondering if you have any and maybe it's just more practice I don't know yeah but even that you understand it in that way is sort of an example of how wisdom is developing right just that you understand that that's problematic right and it is because we don't realize that when we look at the anchor, like the breath moving in the body, or we look at the whole body, so awareness is opening to sensations of sitting or opening to the sensation of the breath in the body. And all of a sudden, the controlling energy is already there. right? But the one thing you can do is appreciate that you're noticing the controlling energy. Because otherwise, reflexively, you're going to want to get rid of the controlling energy. And that is the controlling energy, thinking you have to get rid of it, right? So instead, and you can even put your hands on your heart for a moment or for some moments, oh, honey, there it is. That's the controlling, and that's what I need to see. I need to see there is this, because that's the location, being the one who wants to fix this being the one who wants to be the good meditator, being the one who wants to get to freedom. That's the location. Because it's not about location, it's about illuminating the mind, illuminating the heart, illuminating the body. There's, we're only basically allowing, the practice only allows for one thing, the sincere desire to understand things as they are, to see things as they are. It's not about going from A to Z, you know, which is the sort of normal way to frame the awakening process is I'm a lowly suffering human being. I want to get what the Buddha got. Because <laughs> it really seems like that would be an appropriate desire. But it's a setup, right? Because we've located ourselves here, the one who's suffering, who's not yet enlightened. And there's all kinds of implications to that fixed location. We can endlessly obsess about the practice from that location and never practice. Because the real practice is getting curious. Like, if you saw what you saw, and you had to because you articulated it clearly to us all, right? then you weren't caught. You were seeing it. You were seeing that controlling tendency. And so just acknowledging what you're seeing, oh, this is interesting, that when the attention looks, the controlling is already there. So in a sense, that acknowledgement, you may want to be with the breath, but actually you don't have a choice. You're going to have to be aware of that controlling tendency first. Oh, that tightness is like this. Can I be patient with that? 
right? Because you're seeing the... Con- and that's where the frame of conceit can be helpful, where you see like, oh, this is the self that wants to get somewhere in practice. Or this is the one who wants a peaceful body and mind. And it's that is getting the controlling body and mind. Oh, this is disappointment. You know, so you're just sort of naming, recognizing how it is. And you'll see, as I'm, it sounds like it's probably already happening, a kind of tenderizing. Right? Isn't it true, those of you who have been practicing for a while, our heart and mind gets really profoundly tenderized by how difficult the simple practice of being aware of the present moment is. It beats us up. Because the self can't do it. You know why the self can't do it? There isn't a fixed self to do it. That's an imagining, right? So we approach the practice, can't help it. We all approach the practice as a sense of a self, of being a self, who's going to finally, once and for all, get our act together, you know, get in control of the mind, stabilize the awareness, get some real calm, some deeper (laughs) emotional, psychological healing, and then start waking up to some of these truths that the Buddha pointed to. That's like goes, that idea, what I just articulated, kind of is accepted, right? We all, including myself, believe that in moments, as if that is the way it is. But all of that that I just said is just a thought being known. And if there's some charge that that stream of thought came out of, that's just that charge, that anxiety, that hopefulness, or whatever it is, being known. It's just that. And the pra- actual practice isn't that identity of being somebody who's finally going to get their act together. The real practice is illuminating that. Oh, yeah, that's a conceit. And it's being known. And that's good to see that. That's the practice. Right? Illuminating the activity of the mind the conceited activity of the mind, getting curious about the conceited activity. Because letting go arises when the mind sees it. Not when the mind tries to fix it or get rid of it, but when it sees it. And seeing it means you have to feel it too. There's a lot of patience and willingness to feel what's not so pleasant to feel. Thanks so much for sharing with us. I'd like to go next. Yeah, please, right here. Hi, I'm Sammy. And Say it again? Sammy. Sammy? Sammy. And, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for this whole bro- program here. I've been here for one year now, and I'm here my last time because oh. I'm going back to Germany, <laughs> where I'm coming from. And... Yeah, I I just really loved it to be here on the Sundays. Sundays I could come, and it was just a really nice experience for me and really interesting for me to see how it is here in the USA uh, compared to Germany. And yeah, I I just want to thank. Mm, you're welcome. It was really nice to be here. <laughs> and you know, they're good Dharma centers in Germany. Yeah, that's true. yeah. You can <laughs> check with me afterwards. I'll I'll give you some ideas depending yeah. on where you live, of course. But there okay. are some good centers. Thank 
Thank you. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was sometimes really hard for me to understand because the voca vocabulary is just really hard if you're <laughs> you don't learn that stuff in school so yeah, yeah it was really hard in the beginning but i i felt like from time to time i understood better and yeah it was really nice to be here mm, good and good luck <coughs> with what's next for you thank you <laughs> yeah any last comment or question before we wrap up our evening together yeah please wait for the mic though Hi, I'm James. Um, I had an example of this with um, maybe a little closer, James. Sure, uh, with a a friend, someone who's a friend and a romantic partner, where um, I caught th this. What was causing suffering for me was this narrative, this you narrative, this accusatory sort of an accusatory version of the poor me that was, you know. You did these things. And every time I would see the you arise, I would say, okay, I'm aware that this is like a thing that's causing suffering and like it's not a rabbit hole I need to go down. But it still w it would pop up a lot nonetheless, even though I, you know, the awareness was somewhat there. And I was meditating and, and then had this insight about it that was related to this stuff from tonight that was so helpful about... Um, sort of feeling, you know, there isn't, what's fixed for me is this idea that we were friends or that we were partners. And those are, those are a fixed self. And if there isn't a me and there isn't a this person as a self, there's just actions that were friendly or actions that were partner-like transpiring between people. But to, to think there isn't a me to have a friendship with, there isn't a me to have a partnership with, there's just these times that happened, uh, allowed me to feel a different kind of freedom that has been uh, uh, really helpful, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And because the Buddha, it's, it's like well, no one is, the Buddha and no one is arguing that there's nothing here, a kind of nihilistic view. Obviously that could be rejected completely because clearly something's going on. It's just <laughs> not fixed. You know, so self exists in a sense, but it's a fluid. So whoever we are is moment to moment to moment, and just as you described, James. And that insight is liberating. You know, so when we work it, and it's a combination of using ideas, right? This is like what I was saying around identity, how the concept of identity or any sort of frame can help us drop frames that aren't that where the mind is fixed. So if we have a fixed sense of self, then we, we bring up like a fluid, the idea of being a fluid sense of self. Not to cling to the idea of being a fluid sense of self, but to illuminate kind of a possibility that allows us, allows the mind to let go of that location. Yeah, that's what friendship is. It's something, it's exactly what it is in our experience, which is fluid. Like when you think about the joy of friendship, it isn't the idea that you have that we're friends. No, the joy of friendship is the moment, the moment, the moment, the play, the dance, the interaction. But none of that is fixed. You can't bank on any of it. It's always in motion. It's always becoming the next thing. It can be, we can be intimate with it, 
In a sense, the heart can be fed by it, lightened by it, but we can't own it. We can't put it in the bank. There's nothing there really to grasp. And that's a real sea change for the heart because we sort of have the attitude that if we're in relationship like the example James gave with another person, romantic relationship, we kind of want to put it in the bank vault so it's mine and I can count on it and it then, because it's in my bank vault, it elim- uh, eliminates my existential anxiety because this person loves me. How do I know? Because they're in my bank vault. <laughs> you know? But there's, no, there's none of that. That We have to let go of that idea that there's some ground there, that relationship or anything. It's fluid. We have each moment, but that's all we have. The past is gone, the present isn't here. That, that takes some time to get used to. But it really begins with that kind of, in Buddhism we'd call that contemplation where we're using an actual situation and some new concepts, right? And it's that dance between our actual lived experience, what we're feeling, what the dynamic is like, and the new information like, maybe it's fluid, maybe it's not fixed. Oh, yeah. And then the pragmatic result. Things are lighter, like you said. Thanks for that. It's good to hear. Let's just take a second, let go of the words, or a few seconds. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. Maybe pass the mic back to Gene in the corner. It's nice to be able to put down the words. Enjoy a few seconds of silence. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.